Welcome to Profiling Criminal Minds. I'm Dan. And I'm Dr. Redmond. And we are back for our rundown of what Criminal Minds is and what Criminal Minds means. Our academic breakdown of the show we just spent 15 seasons talking about. (laughs) Uh, We've gone through a lot of disparate topics uh, these past few weeks, and now we're getting into the really... I mean, it was pretty meaty stuff last week, but now we're getting into the, the really meaty stuff, which is uh, how much the show has a problem with women and the extent to which, uh, let's face it, it models a lot of toxic masculinity. Yep. I think that's fair to say. Yep. Uh, so let's go, uh, uh, let's, let's jump right in on uh, the, the very start its attitude towards women. Now, I think it's fair to say that any show about serial killers, on its surface, probably going to have a bit of an issue with women. You know, uh, it's it's rare to see one that doesn't uh, that doesn't. How shall I put this? Fixate on the violation and murder of women because that is the vast majority of what uh, serial killers do. You know the only show that didn't really do that? Which one? Hannibal. Yeah, that was, but that was so, yes. Yeah. uh, (laughs) I'm going, I'm going, yeah, you're right. And even the books. Yeah, even the books. Like it doesn't dwell, it doesn't dwell on the, it doesn't dwell on the torture and murder of women. And on the show Hannibal, I not most, but if you told me that most of the victims on Hannibal were men, I wouldn't call you a liar. I would have to check. Yeah. But just thinking about it, tons and tons of tons of male victims mm-hmm. to the point where, like, if you look at Hannibal himself, unless he's uh, un- unless he's being the copycat killer to frame Will, he generally only kills men. Yeah, when you're looking at uh, yeah. No, no, I, all rule. of those. Yeah, as a rule. Yeah. It's kind of fascinating. Whereas Criminal Minds does not have that issue at all. No. Oh, <laughs> I mean, it is, it is I, uh, I don't remember which review it was, but it's like the first I talked about the, uh, uh, in it, I was talking about the first image in one episode. And the first image in that episode was that, you know, like I wrote, uh, somewhere you know in a dark basement a woman is crying and then i'm like you know what i think i've found the show's thesis statement yeah (laughs) i don't remember which episode i wrote that for but it feels true is my point yeah it does feel true yeah because you get you get women suffering is like the the one thing you are guaranteed out of a criminal mind story and I mean, yes, there are some serial killers who just attack men on the show. It, that does happen from time to time, but less than you'd think. And you. <laughs> yeah, because they don't always, because no. they don't always do serial killers. No, they don't either. always do serial killers, but almost always do serial killers. Yes. Well, no. And I think that's what's at the core of the show is this. Now, and what we have to get into is, is this the, to what extent is the show modeling, right? The, the hatred of women 
that motivate serial killers. Because, you know, as we've always said, the, the psychological condition that is being a serial killer is generally a question of badly directed, um, like really horrifically misdirected uh, sexual instincts, right? So it's, you were damaged when you were very young and you got into your head that this is what, uh, this is what normal was, sexual attraction, lust is pain, you hate that you were told to hate the people who cause you to have lust, blah, 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 blah. It all circles around until killing is what you are horny for. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was listening to this podcast about a serial killer the other day, and it's like, now, and I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, let's get to the point where his mother, you know, sexually tortured him for his entire childhood. And yeah, we got there, you know, yeah. you always get there. I mean, you always the get mother. there, the mother or the father. Yeah. Or, you know, or again, someone close to someone close. There's yeah. always, there's always the priest and there's always the uncle and there's always the aunt oh. and there's the babysitter. And Oh, absolutely. But it's like, you'll always find this kind of horrific sexual torture like that screws up and it can be, it can be physical torture. It can be bad, like convincing people that it can convincing people, you know, that through just psychology and regular punishment, that all of their desires are evil, you know, mm-hmm. like that is, that is the kind of thing that warps people's minds and turns them again into serial killers. And it's like, literally this guy was a serial killer and his brother was a successful dentist who lost everything, but he was caught cause he was caught, you know, molesting his young patients. Right. Because it's the whole family suffered from this woman's madness and yes. it turned them all into monsters. Of right? one sort or another. Exactly. Right. And what gets me, uh, what gets me is the show, like when you're watching it, you get it, you get into the idea of how much of this is, oh, well, we're doing this because this is what serial killers are about. And how much of it is modeling what people expect to see in their, like in their fiction about serial killers. Well, well, no, it's not even that you can, you can um, watch their, you can listen to the commentaries. Yeah. And if you go back in the early seasons when Erica Messer, for example, was just a writer and was writing with Deborah Fisher. Yeah. Right. And I can remember the first one they did, of course, was the Bernardo case. Yep. That's together. quite a commentary to listen to. And I would recommend anyone check that one out. Yeah. And, you know, and, oh, geez, you know, I didn't realize it. Are we this, you know? Yeah. But it's also that she tasks her writers with finding new and interesting ways. And, you know, it's, it's, I mean, you get to the point where you really wonder, you know, about the writers and the showrunner after Bernardo. Cause I was, I've been thinking about Bernardo and I am sure that this business that I talk about, um, that Bernard, we bought, uh, yeah, the Bernardo case. I mean, not the Bernardo case. And then when we're talking about Bernero. Bernero, yeah, that's the uh, original, who, you know, yeah, yeah the, original, the original showrunner. The original showrunner. Um, and he had a different sort of view of, I suspect, of what the show was supposed to be. And that's, you can just blame it on a shift in showrunners 
And well, I mean, if you it ever, gets uh, worse and worse. Like, if you take a look. Well, no, but I mean, if you ever want evidence that he had a very different idea of what the show was supposed to be, you just have to watch Suspect Behavior. Yeah. You know, which is Ed Bernero's Criminal Minds. Yeah. And, um, but what I was going to say, and if you see, like, I'm looking here at a bunch of examples we came up with, right? Yeah. And they're all the later seasons. That's Every true. now and then you that. have an early one. Yeah. Right? Like season Absolutely. three, episode two, that you yeah. could say, uh, yeah, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's literally the episode that opens up photographing a, uh, pho- like, photographing in the style of a love scene, a man torturing a woman preparing to cut her heart out. And I know that, again, they would say, oh, well, we're just trying to show what's going on in his head. I'm like, first off, are you, though? Because this woman has already failed him and he's about to kill her. So he doesn't think of this as a romantic thing. He's trying to find a woman to replace his lost wife to be a parent to their child. And he's decided this woman needs to die. So why are you filming it like it's a seduction? Yeah, and it's... it's, um... And that one is, that filming is very interesting because, of course, that's the choice of whoever did the photography. And the director. And the director. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I can look it up, but. Um, yeah, about who directed that episode. But there's, who directed yeah, there's a real, there, there's a real awfulness and it all, but the thing is, when you're the showrunner, everything has to go by you. You know, yeah. nobody, nobody decides on something in an episode unless the showrunner was involved in that decision. It just doesn't happen. You know, and that is, that is why I, you know, I don't completely want to give Ed Bernero a pass because yes, it got yes. a lot worse after he left. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. But huh. I want to say Limelight was still under his, you know, purview. Not just Limelight, but do you know that he directed that one? Which he one? directed in Birth and Death. Wow. So, yeah, we can't exactly give him a pass. No, we can't give him a pass. All of a sudden, I have death. to backtrack on a lot of this stuff. <laughs> well, no, I mean, and the thing is, like, you can't give him a pass either because you look at suspect behavior and until the inspiration and the inspired happened, right? And I mm-hmm. consider those to be the most just horrifically misogynist episodes of the show almost ever, right? Like those, those horrific, the inspiration, the inspired. But until he did that, the most awful thing to have ever happened in an episode of Criminal Minds or Related Text is that terrible episode about the guy in the garage who cuts off women's arms and legs so they can't claw at him while he's sexually assaulting them. Yeah. Like, again, and that under Ed Bernero's purview. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a kind of interesting that, like, even he... Yeah, it got a lot worse after he left, but even he stood over this. And you can say, well, and this is what I want to dig into. You can say, well, you know, all because it's about serial killers, this kind of content is going to be like it's um, what's the word I'm looking for? It is integral to the kind of narrative, right? And I would argue that because of all of the other serial killer themed shows we've watched, right? We can say that you don't actually have to show a ton of the victim suffering, right? No, it's to in, make this show. 
No, you don't have to do that. You don't have to focus on it. You don't have to spend all this time watching the murders. Yeah. You know, and that is consistent whether it's females or males, but it's mostly females. Yeah. Right. So it's almost as if it is, it is some kind, well, it's, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I don't know how they got away from it because it certainly verges on, um, um, what do we call it? Uh, snuff porn. porn. Yeah. You know, Uh, it comes pretty friggin', it comes pretty friggin' close, right? At times. That's true. Um, and you know, you have, Oh, you have all of these women and they are, I don't want to say, yeah, I know these, these victims. Yeah. It's, it's funny when I'm, when I'm thinking about it, um, I, it is horrible to watch. I can see, I don't blame Mandy Patinkin for what he said. You know, um, and you watch people who just pick up the odd and if they pick up the wrong episode, you know, or they'll watch a bunch of episodes and it is clear the misogyny is just, it's as if there's this, it's as if they relish in these visuals. In depicting this kind of suffering. In depicting the suffering consistently. And you don't get that, for example, in other shows that are dealing with murder, are dealing with any other subject. Well, like yeah, I mean, this. the thing is, you look, at, you look at a show that works with the same kind of subject matter this one does. Law and Order SVU. Mm-hmm. Now, you can say that is success, um, right? You can say that is being, um, that that is sensationalizing this kind of crime, right? all the the rapes and molestations and murder on law and order sex crimes svu i just keep calling it law and order sex crimes because the actual thing in the nyu is called the sex crimes unit but anyway uh nyu nypd oh my god embarrassing uh but anyway uh what gets me right is you can't say that that show is ever intending to oh god it's so awful to say glorify well i was gonna say celebrate the violence yeah. No. And, and I feel like there is a degree to which Criminal Minds is celebrating even the violence. Well, the problem is, is because it is inconsistent as well. Yeah. See, the, what, it's not just what you watch, but it is the inconsistency in the way it deals with the killers. Yeah. That makes you go so you really have a little bit of sympathy for these killers or is this what you really wanted to do you Mm -hmm. know i mean are you uh, it it is um it is a bizarre part to i think nobody can go to that let's go to that erica messer episode right which is um and i think it's a perfect example of thinking of the killers as in a way the main characters being more interested in the killers than the people who are chasing after them right and that's the problem and i think a perfect example of that is going back to the one you brought up the erica messer written well deborah fisher deborah fisher episode about the homolkas because it literally opens 
not just with a snuff film being watched, but a snuff film being watched by the parents of the victim and the father of the victim dying of a heart attack because he watched his daughter being tortured to death. Yeah. Right? Then you have the one where the, the brother with a mental deficiency, like, brutally tortures and rapes his niece. And they're like, you know what? The, like, we, writing this, should make it so the father then has to watch that tape. Yeah. Like, those kinds of scenes is what I'm talking about. And to, the fact that they want to make they go out of their way to in an incredibly sensational fashion, like make the surviving parents or like relatives, their pain part of the, the car accident that we're all watching, right? Yeah. Make their pain part of the entertainment is what those episodes were doing. And I know that when people commit these crimes, they echo outwards and hurt other people, but the show makes it feel like the killers are accomplishing something by doing that. It's, it, yeah, it's, yeah. And it is trying to get to the mindset of, of basically the whole show. Is this what you did you? Okay. You know, I mean, you started your blog initially to deal with can profiling catch serial killers. Yeah. And I would say another, and so you come to the conclusion, no. Nope. <laughs> no, of course not. Okay, I mean, that's Never has, basically. never will. <laughs> okay, and so go read his blog. All, all <laughs> every episode, he did those. Oh, 300 and whatever episodes. Yeah, okay. And you can get his, uh, his stats on that yeah. um, year by year. Uh, whereas this is, can you do a show? then that is looking for serial killers and as i say there's you know you would think there's one around every corner if you watch criminal minds yep <clears throat> and can you do it right without having this denigration of women all the time yeah and i'm not sure No, that's not true. I am sure that you can do it because 8mm did it. 8mm did it. Hannibal does it. You know, like, you know, it can be done. It can be, it can be done. In fact, we and, eight episodes of Unsub and you can say, well, Unsub had to be more careful because that was the past and you couldn't show his awful things on television. And to a certain extent, that true, but it was, that's true, but it's still a fantastic show that did not wallow in the crimes of its. Yes. Villains. In fact, it, and, and you can see that in the opening of the Rachel Nichols one. Yeah. As well in that very opening one where they just, the pain that they have over the one member of their team who is killed, killed by this serial killer? Well, killed herself, but yes. Yeah, killed yeah. herself, right? But at the first, they, at the first, they think she was killed by the serial killer. Right. Yeah, but their their pain in all of that. Oh yeah. Right, and in that show as well, mm -hmm. you never, you don't get the same. It's just they're more. Okay, they're more interested in 
finding the serial killers, they don't excuse ever. Yeah. Now, it only had eight episodes, I grant you, both of them. Yeah. And who knows what they would have done. But the focus, so these shows can be done without giving us pornography. Oh, absolutely. Like when they did the, um, so there's two times in the episode, in the, the show Unsub, where you can really feel them making you, trying to make you understand the killer and what they were up to. And in both cases, they were massively screwed up people who weren't even really trying to kill people. They just, they were so trapped by their horrible upbringings and their horrible circumstance that they needed to violently lash out. And that's the kid who was setting fires and the Kevin Spacey bomb setting episode. Yeah. But the only time they allowed us to really, um, they did a little with the, the lady cop as well. But even then, it's just to show you all of, every single one of those episodes they didn't so much want you to, well, I mean, with the kid who was setting fires, they obviously did. Uh, but it's not like they're trying to excuse their actions. They're just trying to say, this is the childhood stuff that creates these people. And the real villains are the parents who did this to them. Yeah. Right? Like, that's the real villains. These are just, these are kids. These kids are, well, now adults, but they are bombs that their parents built that yes. have been ticking down. Yeah. Right? And as I said, and, and the reason the bomb episode, like the kid who sets the bombs is so interesting Fires, is you yeah. have the intervention. And the idea that before you've actually killed someone, before you've crossed that, that line, can you intervene and help this kid and like turn their life around? Like and what kind the, of intervention yeah. is possible? It's, yeah. And you've got our, um, oh, what's his name? M. Emmett Walsh yeah. saying, some of us were kids like this who somebody went out there and made an effort to talk to and made an effort to pull out of this stuff. Like it is not fate that they end up like this. Yeah, they right? don't have to end up becoming serial killers. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And this it's show really good. As yeah. I said, we, we made a list of some of the worst ones. And of course that was yes. gate, gatekeeper proof, inspired inspiration. Yeah. In the name, in name and blood, and then Can't the follow we up. Li Can't believe we uh, forgot to left. we uh, left limelight off of there. Off that list. Well, yeah, but we were just you know running through, yeah, we through were just a few. Yeah, no. You know, and limelight, and all of all of these. It's just the way that they have to constantly show you. I I see. I don't know. What in their heads the purpose of showing you all of this violence yeah. serves in the episodes? And can it be done without it? And yes, it can. Yeah, in fact, like, there are so many of these episodes where we've got, but I want to know this, or I yeah. want to know something else. Well, if you cut out out of out of out of every one of these episodes, if you cut out two minutes of people screaming in terror and being tortured by murderers, yeah. you'd have that much more room to actually do the plot. Yeah. Because that's not plot. No, that's not, that's not plot. That's indulgence. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, an, it's, it's a net, a, an unnecessary indulgence 
in a, in a show that is supposed to be about catching the serial killers. Yeah. We don't Instead. need to see everything that the serial killers do. I mean, you have horrible things that happen. For example, I'll keep going back to CSI. Oh, yeah. Right? You have horrible things that happen to people. And, I mean, even like, um, you know, they'll scare you. I, it was funny. I watched one last night. Just to, just to sh So you have this couple this woman this couple there and the kids and they're on a roller coaster and you see that the car that they're in one of the wheels is going uh oh right uh, but even there you don't see their car going because they get off of it so you sigh some you have yeah this sigh you have of tension, relief you have relief yeah. and then they're standing and they're ordering their their burgers and all of a sudden, because the next in run the has gone around in the background, we've met before their car goes flying off and get well. Get you don't through. even see who's in the car; you just okay. see the car, right? Right, floating. So, and you have, and you can imagine in your head. This goes to so many of black and white films as okay. well, or earlier films that dealt with some of these horrible issues. Now, they never said that they were doing a horror show. Yeah. You know? Um, and, um, but even that, you know, I, I just, I, as I said, it was so hard to watch for so many different reasons. Yeah. And the fact that they could actually do, like, if you want to go to, to a, sh to one of their episodes and if they'd had more of those, right. Was the, um, fruit, um, I was going to say the hanging tree. The strange um, fruit. Strange fruit. Yeah. All you have to do is go to strange fruit. Absolutely. Um, and there's that episode managed to, you didn't have to see the horrors. <laughs> and they could yeah. manage to do it. And it's still a powerful episode. And it's, it's still an incredibly a powerful episode without, a, with only us talking about the awful stuff that happened. Yeah. You know, and in this case, I mean, and in CSI, they usually show you the aftermath. They don't. No, of course. And yeah, I mean, with CSI, you'll get some like what they used to call MTV edited, you know, quick cuts of seeing the crimes happen with like the massively oversaturated light. And it's like, here's what happened. And then you do like the ramped up speed and things like that to like show you a dramatic quick cut version of the crime as it yeah. happened. But that's always over in like 10 seconds. Yeah. And that's exactly the point. This one dwells and dwells so much on the women. And it does, it does, dwell on the torture that the victims are going through. Yeah. And some of them are just horrendous. And you have to ask yourself, of course, you could ask yourself why we watch it. Well, <laughs> we committed to watching it. Well, I mean, I, I made it clear. I wanted to do an investigation of how profiling was. Uh, well, when you started, we did not know. Away from me. Yeah. Well, yeah, we didn't know where it was going to go. And then you get stuck in this loop of, and then we started the podcast and then we were really stuck. I know. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, we, you know, we got caught up in this and yeah. there are so many of them that I would, well, I have Alec actually relegate, relegate, relegated, relegated to the dustbins of my <laughs> brain somewhere. 
And I'm sure that because I can watch, them, I can't watch them again. Like I'm not even tempted. And what's really interesting is that you used to be running them all the time on CTV, CTV drama. Right. right. Because during the days they run things like, um, oh, I think they're doing Chicago Fire or something now. And they run CSI and they run Bones and they run. And one, one of the days was Wednesdays. They used to run Criminal Minds. So you could watch Criminal Minds. Right. Every Wednesday, there was there would be about six or seven episodes of Criminal Minds. Okay. And that was when I started sort of watching things on TV, that was consistent. And then all of a sudden, they dropped Criminal Minds. <laughs> they put in another day. They put in an extra day of CSI. <laughs> and they're going, okay. Um, there you go. There you go. Like either, I obviously wasn't, people weren't watching it. Yeah. Because I would assume that's the only reason they would have pulled it. No, that's the only it. reason you would ever pull something. Something yeah. like that. And people were watching clearly CSI. And I mean, CSI runs, it's got how many seasons? 15 yeah. or something so like seasons. That. Yeah. Right. When they decided to stop it. And, mm -hmm. um, William Peterson now says, well, yeah, he's kind of willing to go back to his, that character again. He kind of misses him. Um, they want to do one of those reunion type deals. William Peterson's happy to come back, which is good to know. Yeah, you know, um, so the show was, uh, but yeah, I mean, and people obviously are watching it because it just kind of, you can watch it again and again and again. Well, I don't really want to watch it again and again and again anyway. But Criminal Minds, it, it was just like, no, I just can't take any more of watching it. Yeah. There are some episodes I'm willing to watch again, but very specific episodes. And I have yeah. them either on disc or I can get them from the library if I have to. And it is because it is so abhorrent with the way it treats women and then the way it treats it's just way it treats sometimes it's all of its victims yeah it, it but because it's predominantly female victims you get you end up with this overarching feeling of misogyny and contempt for women and, and contempt in this world right there's this weird dichotomy where there's it feels like they're so obsessed with showing like uh, there's something i talked about ages ago right um about how whenever there's a scumbag who hates women who they need to get information from they will always send in the female agents to talk to them yeah and I mean, you can say, well, they're trying to keep them on balance, but this isn't, and I always respond, this isn't someone you want to keep off balance. This is someone you want to get information from. This isn't an interrogation. But I feel like on some level, the show understands that it has created a world where any woman at any moment can be kidnapped and raped and stabbed to death. And they are so afraid of seeming openly, awfully misogynistic that they go out of their way to overcorrect and give the women on the show stuff to do that really doesn't make sense from a narrative standpoint, just because they're like, no, we've got to show them standing up for themselves and we've got to show them standing up to people. And I'm like, maybe if you've spent less time 
like graphically detailing the violation of other women, you wouldn't feel the need to do this, uh, use your characters in ways that don't really make sense. Would yeah, it's not just don't subject. make, yeah, I mean, we've had some real, um, you'd have to be listening to all the episodes if you've of listened course. to all the episodes that we've done. You will see just how upsetting it is sometimes when they mm -hmm. send in these women and <coughs> the women okay. agents. And I, I, it's pandering to the sexism. Yeah. The, of its audience too. I think Sometimes I wonder if, if that's not part of it, that the audience doesn't even see it. Yeah. Um, as a problem. Although, as we know, their numbers kept dropping and dropping and <laughs> dropping. So more and more people, they may not have known what upset them, you know, like I... As I, well, say, I think it's worth noting, right, that um, their highest rated season ever, right, what the, and this is like the, where it got highest in the ratings the entire history of the show was when Jennifer Love Hewitt at, joined the cast. Yeah. And you think, well, what is the brand of Jennifer Love Hewitt? Well, she has been the star of like three different TV shows where she was the lead and the only main character. Yeah. And it's like where it's like... Yeah, she is where it's her story. She's driving the action. She is the one who everyone is like, uh, everyone, you know, defers to, right? And so that mm -hmm. is the brand you get with Jennifer Love Hewitt. And so you, you question, like you go and you watch the show and Jennifer Love Hewitt is added. And now, of course, you're watching because you're a fan of hers. But then you end up with this show where she gets almost nothing to do. And it is tonally so completely different than anything she's ever done before. I am not surprised at all that she wanted out of that show. Yeah, and that, that her fans didn't stick around didn't for the show after she left. Show. Yeah. That's the thing. All of her fans left the minute she left the show. Like nobody stuck around. And I find that very interesting. Because it didn't, like, because what you expect from her is a show. I'm not going to say it's necessarily, I haven't, I've seen some episodes of Ghost Whisperer. I've never seen any episodes of The Client List. I can only imagine how uh, Woman Positive, a show where she played a, uh, a sex worker was. But maybe it was very, I don't know. The point is, you expected a show where a woman was the lead if you're watching a Jennifer Love Hewitt show. So not only to not have a female lead on the show, even though Jennifer Love Hewitt's on it, but for it to be such a, such a violent show where women are treated almost exclusively as victims, it had to be jarring for her fans, right? I would think it had to be in the end that, um, because it, I suppose this is where, because the next section we want to talk about, right, is... Yeah, in a moment. In a moment, it fits in. It's almost like it doesn't break into two parts because here, attitude towards females, well, it's also the attitude towards the females on the team. Yeah. You know, it and as you... Absolutely is. I mean, you say at one point they, yes, they, they put them in these positions, mm -hmm. right? Um, that are, well, you know, really 
inappropriate in some ways, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Sometimes and sometimes because it treats, it's when they get their biggest parts. I think that's, if you, if you think about it, it's when they get their biggest amount of time. Yeah. Is when they're in those positions with these serial killers. Yeah. When they get to, yeah. Um, Yeah. When they get to hang out with these awful serial killers, well, they're getting more lines. So positive. Yeah. They're getting more lines. So this tells you that we're treating women better, but I'm not so sure like, I don't know whether the show, it's distribution of males and females. You know, they would yeah. argue that, and I would say, but that's not enough. It's just like, you know, like I said, yeah, so you tell that, I can compare it, right? This is what I would compare it to, the attitude mm-hmm. towards the staff on criminal minds, just because they've got an equal number of men and women, basically. Yeah. So that's enough. That makes yeah. it feminist or whatever. No, it doesn't. It's like the Catholic Church, okay? They, they said you could now do your, your masses in the vernacular. Right. You could now have m- different music in the church. You could now, nuns didn't have to wear all of those big heavy robes and garments and be completely covered up yeah. anymore. Um, it, there's a whole bunch of these things. Well... Duh. And everybody hailed, and there were a few other little things, but mm-hmm. there were some other things. But, and I can remember looking at it and constantly arguing. <laughs> and of course, people thought I was nuts, but <laughs> um, arguing that it doesn't really, that is cosmetic. That's all it is. Yeah. It doesn't. And having change. an equal number of women cast members or indeed staff members, again, can just be cosmetic if the messages they're putting out are exactly as toxic as the ones that were being put out when only men were writing things yeah, and starring and I, things. And I do think to some extent, people haven't talked about that part of it, that it's not as if, like, could, if you had JJ, you have the only person, okay? The yeah. only person who um, is... I, I, I couldn't say this about is Penelope. Right. Right. But other than that, I'm not so sure that you couldn't replace all of those women with men. And it wouldn't and have a difference. The no, it wouldn't change the show. At it all. wouldn't change the show at all. A- no. Except that people would be screaming about it a hell of a lot more. Oh yeah. Absolutely. You know, it, oh, it's all these men. Right. Yeah. And in the writing room, they mm-hmm. had women as well as men, right? And they tried yeah. to keep more women in the writing room um, after the first few. Like you, you can see the turnover is greater in the female writers than it is in the male writers. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we can't ask, you know, nope. why is that? Like, because again, it's the cosmetics of it. It looks good. Like when I write, when I write because I've got a database I still haven't filled the whole thing out. But when I look at that database, and you can see that there are women writers in the rest of it. Oh, yeah. But we're still getting all of this. And I think that, but it's a, it's a cosmetic thing mm-hmm. that just because you put in women, well, yeah, if women are going to behave like men, the whole point of 
feminism and the whole point of equality is not that we're all supposed to be like men. Yeah. You know, that's, that's not what we're talking about. No, and it's saying yet, that what women bring to the table is equally as valuable. Except that what happens is that, you know, um, as we know, that show ended up being basically, uh, you know, um, if, if, I, if I read the court filing correctly, uh, basically <laughs> the DP was running the show. <laughs> was a secondary showrunner. Well, but I mean, again, I've, as I've that's explained the before, that is a, well, no, say. no, but that is essentially, but I've, as I've explained before, that is the nature of um, being the director of photography on a show like this. Directors come and go each week, right? Yeah. And so the director of photography, who's there for every single episode, if they stay for season after season, they are almost as important as the showrunner just because they're the highest ranking person who's on set every day. Yeah, and, and, but what I'm saying about the court filing, the implication is that he was basically acting as the showrunner. Oh, yeah. That they, that the sh what they say is that the show leaned too heavily yes. on this person. Yeah, for guidance and for the direction. For the direction of the show. Yeah, because, you know, the actual showrunner may have been busy with other projects. That happens a lot. We know the showrunner was busy with at least one other project. Mm -hmm. A little show called Beyond Borders, the worst thing with the Criminal Minds name on it. Yeah, that had, uh, and so that would have taken up, taken her. A huge amount of three, time. Well, three years, basically. Yeah, because yeah, a year to development and the, a year to develop it and then two years where she was running two shows. Well, you can't really run two shows. Yeah. Like Joss Whedon was technically the showrunner on two shows simultaneously, but anyone who was there would say he didn't work much on Buffy. He only worked on Angel once Angel started. Yeah, because... I mean, technically, he was the showrunner and he weighed in on everything, but he was not involved day to day in running Buffy once he got Angel because to him angel was the more important show and angel's the better show generally so he was right about that yeah and uh, but but this is what i will say is that yeah. buffy didn't i don't think right to the end of buffy now we're talking about buffy talking yeah. about a show about powerful women yes exactly okay bad and good mm -hmm. um so buffy still right to its end yeah right manages to keep it together. Yes. Like, there are, the, every show has its ups and downs, no matter. No, but it had, a, it had a theme and it had a message and it managed to stick to it. And Absolutely. it managed to stick to it and you could watch it right to the end mm -hmm. and it was fine. Oh, you know, absolutely. You, you're not going to start having this. You, you don't see all of a sudden when he's doing Angel, this complete drop off in quality. Art. Yeah. Drop off in quality. No, because I would assume he kept his staff. I don't know. And he kept people, you know, consistently oh, yeah. on that show. I mean, the worst year I think Whedon was, was doing it probably was the Jane, Jane not, not Jane Lynch. Yeah, Jane Lynch played the evil. No, no, it's not Jane Lynch. It's um, the what's other one. Name? Oh, God. Lindsay. Lindsay Krauss. Lindsay Krauss. Yeah. From House of Games. Yeah. That was the worst. Yeah, that was probably the worst season. Some people yeah. don't like six, but I think four was probably the worst season. Yeah, I think four was the worst season. I think it yeah, sort of took one. it in a bizarre direction that yeah. they recovered from, but they recovered. Oh, yeah, five from. was fantastic. Yeah, so, you know, uh, and then 
so you know you can there are different reasons but we're not here to talk about that but no, you no, can no. have shows and as i said just because you have female 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 embodiments and what i would say is empowerment <laughs> yeah, empowerment <laughs> my foot because I know. and this is what i say is because when they put emily prentice in yeah when they fired thomas gibson right mm -hmm. they put emily prentice in his his position and they basically as i said for the first i don't know how long it was like she they just gave her hotch's lines yeah and that's not creating an empowered no. character and that's not respecting women that's just you know giving a man's lines to a woman and that ain't the same thing <laughs> that ain't the same thing now if they had brought jennifer love hewitt in to run the bau <laughs> Yeah. After they fired Tom, uh, Thomas Gibson, Thomas that Gibson. would have been a very different feel to it. It would have had a different feel to it, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, but they, they want to say they have this ensemble cast. Well, yeah. and as you say, sometimes, you know, they just mess up their, the lines. And yeah. I mean, you have to have listened. If you've listened to all our podcasts, you know what we're talking about. So it's not as if you can even say that that the female characters are much different than yeah. the men than the male characters they they just they they don't in terms of they seem to think that um drinking i guess yeah. you know is, is all these women drink to excess mm -hmm. so that is what female empowerment uh, I guess. <laughs> these women have uh, sexual partners all over the place um so i guess or they don't we but it's sort of implied periodically yeah so that's female empowerment no what they're saying is female empowerment is women are behaving like men so speaking of <laughs> speaking uh of, we're going to talk about the worst example of that ever and then we're going to move on to the second half of today's show so the worst example of that ever is the episode of Criminal Minds I talk about the most, a little episode called Limelight. And you can listen to our episode about Limelight. You can read my review of Limelight. We're not going to go into the depth of it here. But what it comes down to is, this was an episode where the real villain of the episode was an opportunistic oh, FBI agent who wanted to use these murders to get famous. And the entire message of the episode is what a monster she is and how yeah. awful she is. And at the end of the episode, the tragedy is, well, she didn't learn her lesson. Uh, they did um, the, the neon killer, the neon maniac or whatever that episode is called. Mm -hmm. It's a remake of Limelight, except now she's a news producer, not mm -hmm. an FBI agent. But the key takeaway is they wrote this woman to be a monster. Yeah. And the crazy part is every single thing she does is something that the character David Rossi does. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. And yet, because she's a woman, she's a villain and David Rossi's a hero. Yeah. And, and that is like the greatest example of this show's attitudes. Towards, yeah, women. Towards women, yeah. Because yeah. the minute she like, as you said, they can write a, um, and this is the key part, they can write a woman with dialogue, right? To, as you say, just drop in Thomas Gibson's dialogue. But that's not the same thing. Whereas this one, right? Yeah. 
the, the situation with this episode is that what they've done is they've taken this character and they've given her the worst possible traits and they've actively tried to give her the worst possible traits without realizing for a moment that what they've done is created a female version of David Rossi and held that up for contempt while you're supposed to be in awe of what a great guy David Rossi is. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, Limelight is, in terms of all of the shows that just puts it all together because that serial killer and then the focusing on the women Mm -hmm. and everything in that one is just like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Everything that we've been talking about comes together in Limelight. Yeah. You know, and you have an FBI, yeah. So all she was doing was emulating David Rossi. Exactly. She had built her entire career to do just what David Rossi did. And you can say, and the weird part is the episode could have used it as a way for David Rossi to realize how far he'd fallen from what his intent was. Yeah. But instead, David Rossi just says, she's the problem. Yeah. And And she she didn't learn. She didn't learn anything. She didn't learn her lesson when she got almost tortured to death. Yeah. She should have learned her lesson. Yeah. That episode. All right. So we are going to take a brief break, uh, an ad break, in fact, because we do halfway through the episode uh, ads now. I hope the ones we've added into the uh, uh, previous episodes weren't too jarring because we weren't planning for them when we recorded those. So this one, uh, we're going to take a minute. Please enjoy this ad. We'll be right back to talk about a completely related phenomenon in the show. And we're back with part two of this episode where we're going to get into how the show may hate women, but it doesn't think too highly of men either. Or I guess a better way to describe it is it might think highly of men, but who boy uh, are the things it thinks pretty frigging toxic. Yeah. Are we going to bring these men home to mama? I know, right? (laughs) Whew. Uh, all right, let's get right into it with Criminal Minds and Toxic Masculinity. Oh my God. And right off the top, we will just talk about, I will just mention that the episode, The Black Queen, mm-hmm. is the epitome of that. And as we say, if the lawsuit goes to court, all they have to do is show the jurors that episode. Just show them the black queen and, oh, okay. Okay, yeah, yeah okay, we understand. <laughs> yeah. What more, what more do you need to show? What do you, more do you need to show? Yeah, no, so we absolutely ha- right. It but. is, they never call their characters. This is, this is what the problem is. They mm-hmm. never call their characters on any of their toxic behavior. In fact, they revel in it because Derek, yep. even more than David. Yeah. Because those are the two main characters. We'll talk about Aaron in a minute. Yeah, we can talk about Aaron and Matt and Luke. Yeah. But Steven the two doesn't really main, count. But the two and, main are And there's nothing, uh, the only masculine thing about, uh, about Spencer Reed is the embarrassing season 
where they tried to butch him up and it went terribly wrong. Just yeah. horribly awry. Uh, but no, he does not. It's, it is interesting that uh, in, in our list of all of the tax, t- toxic masculine characters in the show, like it's literally just all of the men except for Spencer Reed. And of course, Steven, who never had the time to develop a character. Yeah, and, uh, and what we would say, if they had, and this is a shout out to any of our LGBTQ listeners, yeah. we all agree that it would have been just fine if Spencer Reed had turned out to be gay. Gay, bi, we, whatever you wanted to do, we bi, would have been 100% fine with that. Yeah. We would have been fine with it yeah. because, you know... Um, yeah, he I mean, does it not is... fit into the show's idea of what masculine and feminine are. Yeah. Like, he really doesn't. At all. No, not at and all. And that's, that's, that's an interesting thing in and of itself, but we will talk about that when we do our episode on... About meta-characters. Meta-characters. <laughs> Derek is not a meta-character. We don't have no. to create a meta-character of Derek. No, Derek it's all is right the, there. The one character where it's pretty clear, right, that he is, as we call him, the poster boy for toxic masculinity. Oh, and yeah. they celebrate it. They think it's wonderful. This mm-hmm. is just, you know, hunky dory to use an old friggin' term. Yeah. Because that's the time when toxic masculinity was at the top of the shelf. Oh, absolutely. You didn't, even, you didn't even think anything of it. That's the way men, men behaved. I mean, I was watching, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I was, I've been rewatching the Dick Van Dyke show, uh, which in its own way, <laughs> yeah. which in its own way is about like the best possible idyllic 60s family, right? But at the same time, you get these constant things of like this constant uh, questioning of... Um, well, what the role of mass, like even in the 60s, Dick Van Dyke and Carl Reiner, and especially Mary Tyler Moore, I'm sure she was weighing in, are there saying, okay, well, what, what is it to be a man? And all this stuff, Rob, that you're assuming makes you a man is just kind of bad behavior that annoys people and makes your life worse. Yeah. Like all of the assumptions he has based on how his father back in the 40s was a man like, don't, they don't make his life better, right? <laughs> they yeah. don't make his life better. They don't make anything happier. They make him miserable. But it's so like, and the show is actually talking about, well, where are these ideas coming from? And should you preserve them? And that's the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah, I mean, that, well, that's what made that. A, a, Such a special and interesting, show. Because yeah. even the character, as I would say, the character of, of, um, of Rosemary, right? Yeah, Rosemary's character, Sally. Sally, right? And, and that's a strange one because she's constantly going out with these men and she can never find a man, but it's clear. Oh, yeah. You know, that she is a lesbian. Yeah. If, I mean, from when you the watch- The subtext is all there. The subtext yeah. is all there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Dick Van Dyke was an interesting show. It deviated from the norm. And then Mary Tyler Moore, of course, went on to went do the Mary Tyler Moore Tyler. show and those sorts of things, which- about a single woman in the city and her like, and it, and she became because of that, a feminist icon, mm-hmm. you know, and, and remained so for the rest of her life. Yeah. And that's what I find mm-hmm. fascinating is you get a show like Criminal Minds, right? Where it's made 
40 years later, and then you have them blithely demonstrating in Derek all of these toxic behaviors presented unironically as how a man is supposed to be. Yeah, unironically. Like there is nothing. Nobody ever calls him on it except the one time halfway when when he and Savannah almost break up. Yeah. No, and somebody it's true. says, they, and this is what, that's the only time JJ says to him, yeah, but that's what you always do. Yeah. You force you them for to break. Excuses. Yeah. You yeah. look, you, you just ghost them until they break up with you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because he doesn't want to have the responsibility of saying, I'm not ready for a, like, and this is the thing about Derek Morgan, and we will talk about this in the meta character, but it's right there in his character that he fundamentally is so afraid of having a real relationship that he always sabotages anything good. And, but he doesn't just sabotage, just sabotage. That's, that's the issue. You yeah. know, I mean, what he does to Penelope. Oh, well, yeah, that's, and that's at the cornerstone of his character in the toxic masculinity of the show. The way he strings Penelope along for 10 seasons, you know, and keeps her, right? Uh, And like always keeps her on the side and always tries to keep her obsessed with him, right? And has this incredibly inappropriate workplace behavior that is like, well, I'm a charming, handsome guy. I can get away with doing this. And that's literally his entire thing. It's like, I'm charming and handsome and everyone knows I'm just kidding. But are you just kidding, Derek? Or are you manipulating someone? Yeah, you're not kidding. You know, I mean, it is just, it is, it is such a, a joke um, yeah. to, to even think. This, this man goes out and, you know, it's a wonder he hasn't come out with all sorts of different uh, STDs. I know. <laughs> we example, have to assume he is religiously careful about using protection. Yes, he he keeps the condoms in his back pocket like oh, he was 15 years old. <laughs> you know, and okay, yeah, I mean, it, and we can understand why he has to prove to himself he's not a homosexual. That's yeah. the subtext. Of course. I mean, you don't, you know, it takes a while before you find that subtext. You're a few years in. But his, his treatment, even of the female characters. Oh, yeah. Is no, not I mean, particularly. He avoids yeah. any treatment with, you know, almost any interaction with JJ. Yep. Oh, no, they almost never team up, right? Just generally. You know, it's kind it, of you, fascinating, actually. Yeah, you have to, when you start looking at it and when you start comparing the team ups and everything else and the way he treated, um, uh, What's her face? Um, hmm? That it took them so long. Um, you know, in the beginning. Um, L. L. Yes, of course. You know, and when he treats anyone who comes in, any female character who comes in. Oh yeah. Any new yeah. female character, because he has to he has to assert dominance mm-hmm. over over any female character that's in that show. Yep. And it's just because JJ got pregnant and married. See, yes. see, see, this is the key. Once you're pregnant and married, this, I have to assume that Derek does not go out with married women. No. Because of his mother and the sanctity of his parents' marriage and everything oh, yeah, else. Absolutely. Marriage. But any other woman is fair game. Yeah. 
and they're to assert dominance them. over. And of course, what he's doing is constantly asserting dominance over Penelope. Yeah, I mean, and she is the prime the victim of, of his. I mean, it's it's the most, and it's kind of sad how awful, uh, like uh, how how much people, how awful it is that people are like celebrating the charmingness of this relationship. Yeah, how like I mean, charming and fun their flirtation is. It's like no, he is as you say, doing this toxic dominance game with her. Yeah. He does it with any. Always in charge, and he does. You're right. He does it with every woman he comes in contact with. Yeah, except for JJ, who's married, who and has children. Yeah, but all of the other women, uh, you know, he generally has that exact kind of relationship with this like aggressive flirting. Oh, but and again, as you say, it's like yes, on some level, he always puts it, uh, plays it off as if he's he's just kidding and just playful, and he's just a flirty kind of guy. But at its core, he's also a guy who's constantly sleeping around and hooking up in whatever town they fly to and then never seeing this woman again because he flies away the next day. Yeah. He's you got know, a girl so, in every port. Well, that would, that would <laughs> like assume he's seeing the same girl more than once. And it's like, I don't know well, that yeah. he does. No, probably not. <laughs> You know, and in terms of, and he, of course, he doesn't want to have any responsibilities in his life, which yeah. is also... It fitting in with this toxic masculinity, anything that might put any kind of brakes on him, he makes yeah. promises he does can't keep, and he won't keep. No, I don't even say he can't keep. He could, but yeah. he chooses not to. But he makes promises all over the place. That's true. You know, it's like, and and we see that with with the little girl in the Tim Curry episode. Yeah, oh, what you know, they could have done with his character if they had just gone forward with that story. Yeah, line. but no, they can't break Derek, Derek the hunk, Derek the toxic masculinity, the embodiment yeah. of toxic masculinity. We can't have him have any responsibilities. He doesn't even have a friggin' dog. At least Aaron has a dog. <laughs> not Aaron. Uh, not Aaron. Luke, Luke has a dog. At least Luke has a dog, yes. Yeah, you know. No, it's true. Like, he's just, there is nothing to tie him down. And it's nothing. unbelievably frustrating because that means there's also nothing to, to make him grow up. And he only gets the chance to do that once, like, l- let's face it, they, Shamar Moore started wanting to leave the show. So they got Derek a wife to give yeah. the character an excuse to leave the show. Yeah. If Shamar Moore hadn't wanted to leave the show, we would have watched Derek Morgan be pushing 50 and still being this creepy scumbag. Then he would become, he would start becoming a dirty old man because he'd oh, yeah. still be dating women in their twenties. <laughs> Which you're one hundred percent right. And, and keep then we bulking move... up and keep and, and worrying about his hair and or non hair. Yeah. Well and... no, he's bald, so you know that's not a problem. Well, but he sure would he be you know shave? Oh, he does <laughs> shave, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, he uh no, just like taking testosterone and trying to like, you know, stay vital. He would have been become very There would have been jokes about Viagra. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. There would have been jokes about Viagra and how no question he that. didn't need it. <laughs> that would have happened. Oh, no, absolutely. If By the time we got to season 15. <laughs> well, no, and that's the thing about Derek is like he's, there's this core at his character of assuming that because he is a quote unquote alpha ma- male, he gets whatever he wants. 
you know, that he's entitled to just do whatever he wants because he has that position and that status. And the show, as you say, that doesn't question that until the very end when they're exiting the show, when he's yeah. like, when they're segueing him off the show. Yeah. You know, and um, what was I going? There was something that ran across my mind. Um, when you were talking about sort of the, al- the alpha male yeah. uh, thing, right? It, it, but it'll come to me. Um, <laughs> he, he, yeah, it, it is just one of the things that put me off the show. Oh, I was going to say, yes, and he is good looking. There's no yeah, question. So, well, of course. I would never argue with handsome. anyone yeah. that this is a very handsome man, and he plays that for everything that it's worth. Oh, absolutely. Okay, and, um, you know, and I, I, I hear people talk, oh, they really love Derek, right? And I'm mm. going, yeah, you want to take him home? I don't think so. You <laughs> no. want to have a relationship with this man? Are you nuts? Yeah. He'd be, yeah, you have a, and as far as I'm concerned, okay, yeah, they got him married off to Savannah. Do you think after the first couple of kids, he ain't going to be roaming around on her? Oh, 100%. He's going to be dessert. No he's going to be, right? He's going to last maybe about. four or five <laughs> Maybe maybe he'll make four or five years before he starts. I but I can't see him even making it to the seven year itch. Wow. That that they okay. talk about men, right? Yeah. Men get the seven year itch, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, when they get after married. which, you know. They're like famous movie, by the way. Wonderful movie, movie, honestly. Yeah. Pretty fun movie. With Marilyn Monroe and what I can't remember his name now. Dan something or other. Anyway, very it's funny, movie. funny movie about yeah. this this guy who has all of these visions of himself. Yeah. Because so. he's feeling trapped and blah, blah. Well, I mean, yeah. it's what the title says it is. Yeah. So now let's move on to a very different kind of toxic masculinity. And that is of course, David Rossi. Yeah. David Rossi is <laughs> the kind of guy who thinks he's right about everything. <laughs> And I mean, the thing is, it's such a great portrayal of the type of person that John Douglas actually is, right? Like there's this toxicity at the corner, uh, sorry, the the like cornerstone of John Douglas's personality. Like this is a man who, and I can't stress this enough, this really happened in one of his books. He wrote a what if essay at the back of one of his books explaining why, well, if they just called me about the O.J. Simpson thing on the night it happened, I would have been able to independently tell them that the husband did it without knowing even who the victim was. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's an insane, like, what if? What would it have been like had the LAPD called me in, like, the night it happened and not given me any information and I only knew about the victim and the crime scene? Oh, I would have been able to tell it was the husband who did it right away. Yeah. It's crazy. Like this, that's how arrogant this man is. This is the man who, and this is true, like still thinks Guy Paul Morin um, killed that little girl in Ontario. Yeah, we don't, we've already discussed no, we've that. Already, no, no, I'm, we're not going into it length, but I'm saying like the real John Douglas is the kind of guy who would still say if, who would decades later say, oh, well, if reality was different than my profile, reality must be wrong. 
That's the kind of person John Douglas is. And that's who David Rossi is. Yeah. And Donald Trump. Well, yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> that's just, another just conversation. Throw, yeah. Just throw a little political It's called a drive-by, and I say go for it. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, that's what David Rossi is. I mean, he's charming. Oh, yeah. He, he got, you know, I mean... He's charming, he's likable, he can seem self-deprecating, but he actually thinks he's God's gift to women. Oh, like yes, he, and his wife and the, the mother of his, of his daughter, yeah. right, was perfectly justified. She knew David. Yeah, she, she knew 100% he, knew David. Yeah. yeah, she knew who David was. And mm -hmm. uh, no, this isn't going to work because yeah. David, the marriage wouldn't have lasted anyway. So, mm -hmm. you know, because David has to do David things. David has to be important. As you say, arrogance. The yeah. fact that he could come back and he could decide and then he's not going to retire. And, uh, you know, all of these. Like the, the show literally ends with like a 67-year-old man saying he's not going to retire. Because he is the indispensable man. Yeah. Who, you know, must absolutely be in charge of this. It's kind of crazy, really, that it's like, because, yeah, he should have retired a while ago. And he never actually stopped writing books, either. He never stopped writing books. Yeah. He's got money that you wouldn't believe. Oh, At absolutely. least he's got a partner in the writing the books. I mean, he has done nice things to make him nice. But, I mean, you go back to Limelight that you've already covered. That's the epitome of David Rossi. Every yeah. time he comes close to any kind of self-awareness, he backs away from it. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that he married his third wife over again, <laughs> right? Um, because that was a flyby marriage in yeah. Las Vegas. Um, yeah, she's, as I said, the perfect wife. I said that before, you know, for him. But for him, everything, mm -hmm. everything revolves around his invulnerability and even when they try and make him feel vulnerable i mean as he says i never understood ptsd he's got this idea that he had absolutely no negative impacts there were absolutely no negative impacts from the vietnam war on david yeah yeah you went back three two times after your first tour you did two I more know. tours you're yep. telling me you don't have problems <laughs> okay of course he does of course he does he has to have problems and they have to feed into this uh, this ability to create this persona and live this persona out it's like he's created a character for himself yeah and you know he did he went he went from one military organization into another military organization the military organizations give him stability. We don't know what his life was like before. We almost hear nothing about his family. No. Nope. Do we hear anything ever about his family and how he almost grew nothing. up? We know he went into the military. He had to have gotten a degree to get into the next military organization, which was the FBI. And I would have, and the and the military, the GI Bill would have paid for his education still. Yeah. Right after Vietnam. Oh, you know, absolutely. and then he has, he knows all these famous people. Yeah. And that's, you know, constantly, we're being reminded of all these famous people he, he knows. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and they all sit around and drink and smoke cigars and play <laughs> poker and whatever. You know, live Different the high-end lifestyle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. he's got money, 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 money. So he's created for himself. A person, and it's really hard to get behind it because you never oh, get any clues whatsoever because the show created this character, of course, for, <clears throat> for Joe Montaigne. Yeah, for Joe Montaigne. I mean, yeah. In the, because... in the entirety of the show, we get one moment, like one scene ever, where he has to admit to his daughter that, yeah, he wouldn't have been there for her if he had known about it. Yeah. So at least like, she... that is, Yeah. But I just think it's fascinating that the entire run of the show, you're right that it's a performance by him, right? Yeah. You're right that he's putting it on, right? And it's this performance. And at no point does this man, like there's, there's no nice way to say it right at no point in the entire length of the show does we ever pierce that performance except for that one beautiful scene where he actually like has a heart to heart with his daughter yeah Uh, well except uh, except the other scene when he can't when he is finally suffering from ptsd because he can't figure out why this kid guy didn't kill him yeah but i mean even that scene is is part of his delusion yes. that he's never had PTSD and he's never gone too far. And, and it's like that none of this stuff has ever affected him. That's just not true at all. But I mean, yeah. you're right that he does look for help there, yeah. but it's within the greater structure of this delusion of his that he is free of any of these problems. Yes, he's, he's one of the guys, I think I might've said this before, who put his head on a shelf when he left for Vietnam three times. And, and, um, none of this really happened to me. It didn't happen to me when he comes back and then he just runs his life as if he's never been to Vietnam. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, it, it is, um, it's an interesting, I mean, he, he chooses something that he can do and from one military organization. So obviously his life, earlier on had to be massively disordered to be willing to keep going into these military organizations because really that's what the FBI is like. It has the same kind of structure. It has a whole stack of rules, you know, and you can make fun of them and you can do a few little things in between. And he probably, you know, all along and they set up this new, and he set up, of course, this new unit. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, with Jason Gideon and of course there's the contrast between him and Jason Gideon because Jason Gideon broke down right yeah. whereas David is 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 too much of a man to break down <laughs> yeah and and that is a subtler form of what we call this toxic masculinity yeah because it's easier you know i mean i could see him talking about him and frank oh yeah you know him and frank <laughs> You know, you have these these different characters, right? And you just go, oh, you know, like you have, you know, he could have belonged in um, in our favorite our favorite show by Michael Mann, Crime Story. Oh, absolutely, he would have fit right in. He would have fit right in, right? David David guys. Rossi would have been just right there, or um, the the world of um, Goodfellas. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's no problem at all. That's that's where you take 
David Rossi. That's where da- mm-hmm. David Rossi belongs. And they have really no use for women. No. Except as something to keep them company. Yeah. Something don't to let have them a into good time lives. with. Yeah, no, yeah. They don't let them into their real lives. That is just uh, the purview of other men. Yeah. yeah. You know? And even Crystal figured that one out. <laughs> I know. And within two again. days, within 24 yeah. hours. <laughs> she's like, no, this is never going to be a good idea. And, but, you know, she's older. She's had a kid. She's relaxed now. And yeah. He's like older. Rossi, and he's older and he's calmer. And honestly, he's a perfect guy to hang out and have fun with. But there's no, yeah. like, he'll never let you in, really. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's, it's that other I- ideal of irresponsible men like Derek and David the two of them and it's amazing you know they have all these men on the show but the two key characters the two key men are highly irresponsible Mm -hmm. men who don't really have any use for women I mean I mean Derek has to has to be better than all the women and David he doesn't have to be better it's just they don't serve any purpose other than to make him happy yeah, periodically no, I mean, it, and yes he goes through the abortion thing you know with with the wife i uh, know that not the abortion no, thing abortion the, the, the euthanasia thing the, the euthanasia thing and they even let him off the hook in that oh god that was a disgusting scene you know um you know they they managed to let him off the hook with that one too mm-hmm. right um it, it is it's an interesting character because it is again. I mean, both of these are dead out of the fifties. Yeah, these are fifties oh, ideas of masculinity, mm-hmm. and who wants that? Well, you shouldn't want that. Like maybe that's the problem with this show. It's stuck in the fifties, and how the <laughs> hell it got stuck in the fifties? I don't know. Did they all watch Mad Men and decide they wanted to do Criminal Minds? No. <laughs> Because Mad well, Men no, was Criminal already Minds on. Was on first. That's no, right. Criminal Minds was on first. Yeah. No, no, that's what I mean. Mad Men yeah. was on at the same time, right? So yeah, they didn't learn it from that. No, they didn't. But it was this bizarre idea of okay, maybe they all watched Grease. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, <laughs> you kind of try and figure out. They all watched Frank. They all watched Goodfellas, and they watched, um, oh, you know crime story no they crime didn't. story well yeah yeah and crime story and the godfather and that's who they modeled they they used they that modeled to their model behavior on yeah. david david rossi's character on oh yeah which is a 50s model and frank you know and the rest of it Derek, of course is you know fonzie made real just fyi uh when she constantly talking about frank she's not talking about the character from criminal minds she's referring to frank sinatra the chairman of the board <laughs> yes frank sinatra. i just realized that might be confusing for <laughs> yeah, someone that's true i'm yeah you're right I there was a famous sometimes. character called frank on the show of course yes yes yeah. well no that's not that frank no it's frank no. sinatra yeah you know who had who had uh you know Oh, yeah. Who's, you know, yes. Who's a, a master class in uh, figuring out 60s masculinity right there. Yeah. Especially you know. the uh, period of him being married to Mia Farrow. That is, that oh, is that- an amazing story. Yeah, that's that's just an amazing story, Frank Sinatra. And of course, he was a good friend with the Kennedys. No, of course, yeah. Particularly and- John and oh, yeah. his, and for heaven's all- sakes, 
John John Kennedy's one of his sisters was Pat was married to Peter Peter Lawford who was another yeah. one of these guys. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it is. I mean, it is John F. Kennedy. You know, who screwed around on his wife left, right, and center all the time. Oh, yeah. Never, never. Uh, people should watch the. If you want to know sort of that kind of thing, you can watch the the thing on First Ladies. There's just a little bit about it in there, but you can you can find all sorts. You know, and famously had that affair with Marilyn Monroe. Oh yeah, it's it's all there. And she was and interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what's interesting, though, about David Rossi is like how I don't want to say it's grandfathered in, but it's like there's this accept like because he is older than the rest of them, because he helped set up the unit and all that. There's just like everyone defers to him and he really does like like he really gets off on. That. Oh, yes. He loves being the authority and the voice of reason and experience. And he can pretend to be nonchalant about it exactly you but, know but you can tell he adores it yeah no derek derek is a different version of john travolta in greece <laughs> you mean david no derek oh derek okay derek is john travolta in greece david is just ah, okay. frank sinatra okay just frank writ sinatra. large and then we get from the two biggest perpetrators of toxic masculinity to a character fundamentally is a victim of toxic masculinity and models like a terrible kind of it. And that's Aaron Hotchner. Yeah. Who, and the thing is, and this is, I think what's key, right? Is this is a guy who has been entirely, I want to, I like how do you describe this? Entirely subsumed by the idea that, you know, men have to be like, okay. Like, men have to be stable. Men have to be okay. Men can't ask for help. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's Aaron Hotchner's whole life. Because unlike the other characters, right, you don't even have to have something dramatic happen. Like, Derek um, can admit something's wrong when he has to face up with his molester. David can admit something's wrong when his wife is dying of a horrible disease and wants to commit suicide, right? But Aaron doesn't need like a giant ultra thing to have problems in his life. He's got a bad marriage. He doesn't think he's a very good father. He is, you know, constantly dealing with, uh, you know, higher ups at work. Like Aaron Honchner constantly has problems to deal with and his desire to sort them out all on his own because that's what men are supposed to do does nothing but cause him huge problems. He's the archetype of the company man. Exactly. Like he shows up to work every day. He's got his suit. He's got his tie. He's got his briefcase. And man in the gray flannel suit style, everything is manageable as long as you keep a stiff upper lip. As long as you don't let them see you sweat, everything is manageable. Yeah, and you don't leave, uh, and you don't leave work until the work's done. Exactly. And your wife is supposed to sit at home mm-hmm. and take it. Yeah. And even when he realizes he's yeah. losing his marriage, he can't, he can't stop. stop being this mm-hmm. person who yeah. has got to work till 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, because there's always more work to be done. And so he's there every single night working till way after dark. Yeah. Right? And somebody else is raising his son after his wife is killed. Yeah. 
it's actually unclear who's raising his son from time to time. I think his sister-in-law most of the time. Most is actually time. really hard to tell. Yeah. Well, Where once he's like in his... school, it's not so bad, you know, but that's he's true. never home. If he's never home. Like, that's the thing. You have all the, the stories about guys, you know, rushing home to make sure they get, uh, you know, food on their child's table. You know, you hear the story about, um, uh, about Joe Biden taking the train home every, every single night to single Del- night. Delaware. So even though he didn't get to spend any time with his kids, he always got to tuck them in at night, mm-hmm. right? Aaron Hosher is not even doing that. <laughs> No, I mean, the, o- 11. the only one, the only one, right? The, yeah. the only holiday he's never missed with his son was Halloween. Until he missed Halloween. Until he even missed Halloween. God, that was a rough episode. Huh? Yeah, that was a rough episode, right? Oh, he even missed Halloween. I mean, they saved that kid who got kidnapped and that's great, but oh, poor, yeah. poor Jack. Yeah. You know, and yet Jack seems to be perfectly fine. Yeah, and I don't know. <laughs> I mean, obviously, he married the right woman who had the right sister, sister. who could raise a healthy son. Given yeah. that Lou Grant, you know, is, is got Alzheimer's. Yeah. And his oh, yes. dad was a horrible father, as we oh, know. Yeah. Well, and that's the that's interesting her thing. Father. That's her father. Her father. That's her father. Yes. Yeah. His father is dead. Is dead. Died when he was in his 40s uh, of a heart attack that was, you know, probably brought on by terrible diet and stress. I'm sure because we know there's no way his dad didn't, you know, come home and have three whiskeys after coming home from his day at the law firm. Yeah. Because anyway. his dad, uh, well, no, and that's, and I think that's at the core of why Aaron Hodgson is such a tragic character, right? Because he knows in that first episode with his brother, you can see that he knows that his dad screwed them up. Yeah. Right? Well, and he, but he is trapped by this this as you say ancient idea of what a man like now ancient idea of what it is to be a husband and father. Yeah. And he's like, "Yeah, my father was a complete drunken mess who ruined my childhood and like screwed up my brother, but I can just do it right. He was just doing it wrong." Yeah. I'll just do it right and everything will be fine. You know, but the one he doesn't thing, understand he's stuck in a trap. Yeah. Do you, you know what the one thing is we hardly Please. ever see Aaron drinking. Almost never. He never goes out with the gang. Nope. He never has he them over. He does not keep a bottle of liquor in his office the way David does. does. And Derek. And Derek does. You know, like he's actually very, you're right. I and mean, it's like, and that's how, by, by the way, that's a well-observed thing. And how you know his father was definitely a drunk is that he never touches the stuff. No, and his, and the other one, um, and his brother, of course, has got all sorts of problems is, is oh, yeah. typical because, yeah. but Aaron had to take over the father role because his brother mm-hmm. is that much younger than he is. So yes, he um, has all of this. The, Yep. It and um and sometimes he's tortured by it, but he can't stop it because he needs he needs the structure of the FBI. He needs the structure of the job. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and you saw when he when he talked. Remember, it's the first second season when he talks to you know you know the guy who is a hitman for the mob. 
Yep, the ice Richard, the Iceman Kuklinski fake character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, episode. that was that was still to me the the highlight of Aaron, mm-hmm. right? And the and you could see there what drives him. Yeah, and how that overrides everything. His job overrides everything, and yeah. he's just chosen a different way. Um, to to a, to display toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. this idea of what it means to be a man in an in a Western society in most societies. And the and idea is, together. and he, the the way he's picked like is to don't be cry. How a many perfect times? professional who never, as you say, you don't men boys don't cry. Like that's the thing. Yeah, but yeah, his perfect professionalism is his way of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Right, he's like, no matter what happens, I'm always going to be a professional. I'm always going to have the crisp suit and the professional tie and shine shoes and my yep. briefcase, and I will all and I will never use contractions when I speak. <laughs> you know, he has this I, this presentation mm-hmm. of the perfect idea. The uh, you know the what's what's the word I'm looking for? The platonic ideal of what an FBI agent should be. Yep, is how he has decided to live his life because they are order they are order personified that is how they like to present themselves and that is what he desperately needs to be as i as i said when you watch jim comey right uh you know aaron aaron real life aaron hotchner yeah he's a real life aaron hotchner like it's it's crazy how similar it is yeah aaron just thomas gibson just needed to be a few inches taller yeah i know that's all but yeah like and that's the weird part you so if so if they do a life of 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 Jim Comey, yeah, I could yeah, see we can, popping, we can, popping but, Thomas Gibson in there. Let's pull in Thomas Gibson to do that one. <laughs> I know it would make sense because he's, he's already done it. He's, he's already, already done, done it. it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it's fascinating. And then we get to something really interesting, which is in the late seasons, two characters leave, and we get two new characters. Yes. And those two characters are fascinating. Because both of them, uh, we were talking about Matt and Luke here, obviously, yep. are presented as idealized concepts of masculinity. Because you take all of the drama and you take all of the tragic parts of Aaron's personality, just rip them right out, and you are left with Matt. And you take all the toxic, screwed up behavior out of Derek, and you're left with Luke. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's like they decided they had to be a more friendly, family friendly show. Show right <laughs> at the last minute, because you look does and I mean I went back when I was watching it the second time, you know, um, for the show, yeah. right? Because it had become after I finished reviewing, we were watching all the episodes again. So I finished my reviews time. as you listen, right when we were listening. I think we were, I think we were recording season twelve or something or whatever it was when I finished finally finished reading the thing, right? Yeah. Uh, rewriting all of my reviews and so we were when we were watching for the second time I'm like how much really was Luke flirting with um with Garcia like I mean it's not them being a couple at the end of the show isn't really set up but they they do flirt with one another and they are friendly with one another but you don't notice as much because the show's like the show's version of flirting up until this point has been so hideously toxic yeah. 
that you don't see the pleasant interaction. You don't read the pleasant interactions that he has with Garcia as being especially flirty at all. Oh, no. And it's, and he's not because he has another girlfriend and then that breaks up. And, um, but even then Luke knows where the boundaries are and you don't mess around at work. And that's yeah. all there is to it. And so then that gets said at the end in the last season, in the last episode, in fact, right? He says, <laughs> yes. now I can date you. Exactly. Right? And would you like to anymore. go out? <laughs> yeah. Right? And so, so that's fine. But he's, he's well aware. Like, and, and as I said, though, you know, to me, it's, and I look at Matt and I'm going, this Matt is sort of this person who we know from Beyond Borders. Mm-hmm. right and you see sort of his life but we've already discussed the fact of racism that you know like his his he's not just an idealized 50s father he just is like this this perfection like as i said before i already said they were going back to the 50s and the 60s and the structure that they create for matt is again this idealized father knows best mm-hmm character right um you know that basically the the wife runs the household and the children and everything else but he's always home and he's always at the dinner table and he's always involved in his kid's life which in father knows best world that's exactly what it is oh yeah right now the only difference is is that uh, jane wyman didn't work the mother in father knows best didn't work Mm -hmm. outside of the household i mean she did you know but basically it's the same kind of structure they have they have a relationship where the woman has to every now and then remind the man to be caring about the children of course right um that 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 you can't sort of fly off a handle at the child because there has to be a reason and you have to find out what it is you know and you know just get off your high horse you don't have to Right, because you never saw any physical punishment or anything in Father Knows Best. I mean, mm-hmm. there was, you know, there was how, how you punished your children when they had misbehaved, but the children always figure out that they've misbehaved. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, when you see, that's why um, the Dick Van Dyke show was so different. Uh, but yeah, Matt is that idealized father. And I'm not sure, I mean, okay. It, what can I say about that? Yeah, I guess it wouldn't be bad to have that kind of um, situation, you know, but he still has those problems such Mm -hmm. as making money. Yeah. You know, and how he has too proud to take money from David. Yeah. And David understands that. Those are those are part of there are milder forms again of toxic masculinity. Yeah, but, but well, they can I mean, be very negative. To, well, yeah, refusing Luke to is the only one that doesn't there. have it. Yeah. Luke doesn't have it, period. I mean, he has yeah. no aspect of toxic masculinity yeah. whatsoever. There's that no is much part better. Oh, he's much better, but he's still got the idea of performative masculinity at the core of his character it's not there as much again he is like a cartoon drawing of the perfect husband and father 
Yeah, uh, and of, of kind of like a father knows best. That, that's, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's as if somebody watched Father Knows Best and said, okay, well, we can kind of adapt that into uh, the 21st century. Well, no, you can't, but okay, <laughs> yeah, it's because there, there was no racism back then, and Matt yeah. was a biracial child. Yeah. You know, and so <laughs> there had to be problems growing up, for God's sake, but oh, sure. you would never know. No. He does, you know, he barely looks, you know. I know. It, I mean, there's nothing about his character that lets you see that there has been any trauma in his life yeah, about being. Even though we know yeah, there had to have been. Of course. The only trauma in his life and the only racism you ever see, because we have to go back to his character in. Um, Beyond Borders. In Beyond Borders, right, is with his Korean grandmother. Yeah. That's Who, it. You know, the completely only disapproves of his uh, father having taken his mother away. Or his mother, and, Mar- yeah. Yeah. yeah well, a, but I'm sure how that's how she would, see, the grandmother yeah. would see it. Yeah. About this American coming in and stealing her daughter. And like, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating because they're these tiny, and you can see, and that's, I think, part of what makes Matt so fascinating is you can see that there are all of these issues with, right, that, with their presentation of men on the show and their expectations of what men are supposed to be. And you can see them trying to fix that and they still get caught up in this traditional restrictive presentation of what men are supposed to be and what men are supposed to do. Matt is perfect, but he's still operating within a system that isn't good for anyone, even the men that are at the top of it. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's a fascinating character. Yeah, I'm kind of amazed by it. All right. Um, so yes. And then let's just say one more time. It's kind of amazing how great Luke is, isn't it? <laughs> like, it's kind yes. of, un- like, it's incredible, right? The fact that yeah. he's just, no, he's just great about everything. Yeah. Like, the only thing, the only thing that he ever does that's, I mean, even slightly questionable is when there's a murderer running around trying to get revenge on him for a way he screwed up in Mexico. Yeah. Right. Uh, he, to be fair, does the traditional male thing of I've got to handle this myself. Yes. You've got the entire FBI on your side yeah. and you've fallen into this idea that the rest of your team has, cause they've been modeling some pretty bad behavior. Yeah. And maybe, maybe personal revenge yes. on this beef. This yeah. Guy. Well, maybe, maybe, and that's just because he, he spent too much time with the team. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe David is like whispering the wrong things to him yeah. because fundamentally like the whole point of that story of that, the, the Luke episode, I think the episode is called Luke, right? The whole point of that story is that, revenge only gets worse and worse right revenge isn't going to solve things revenge is just going to create a cycle of more and more violence that's the whole point of that episode and he gets pulled into it too yeah right and it's it is i mean i've got some issues with the episode but from from a character standpoint it's very interesting what they do with luke there because it's the only time we see this man you know really get pulled into this world of toxic masculinity yeah of assuming that he's got to settle everything himself no question right he's been he's been alone too long and that's probably like we don't see what breaks up 
Well, we do know from the writing room, what breaks up his relationship with the nurse is that yeah. they're going to end up, they're going to put him <laughs> yes. with Penelope at the end, right? So the real reason, but the narrative within the show reason is that, let's face it, their relationship could never really recover from that time that he went out to hunt a, uh, yeah. a sniper out of revenge for his best friend getting killed, yeah. who was her friend too. Like there's no way their relationship could survive that. And yeah. you get that. Like, and yeah. that is an honest portrayal of that relationship. I mean, I think they could have written it so they ended up together, but it actually is more realistic that they didn't. Yes. And he I had agree. to go and find somebody yeah. else. I, I would say that is more realistic. Yeah. And again, it goes to show you just how wonderful the presentation of the character Luke is. Yeah, it's, right? it's very is, strange, as I said, in the last in the last few years, you know. Yeah, okay. but it's like, and I mean, I'm not saying that the, sh the writers knew that Derek was kind of a trash person. Yeah. But I, I find it kind of fascinating that, <laughs> I find it kind of fascinating that when they tried to do the new character who's Derek, but better, like, he's just a if you want to be the opposite of Derek, you kind of just have to be perfect in every way. Cause that's how many problems Derek had. <laughs> and it's like the opposite of Derek. Well, he would be a saint. <laughs> and I don't know if they meant that, but that's definitely the payoff for the character. <laughs> he's just a saint. Cause he's the opposite of Derek. Yep. Oh man. All right. So that was our look at uh, misogyny and toxic masculinity in criminal minds. There's, there's a lot of it. Uh, we could be, we could make this show a lot we longer, do, but we could do another one, but we're not going to keep you here any longer. Nope. Uh, join us back here next on Tuesday, of course, for more criminal minds, Korea. I hope you're enjoying that. We haven't done it yet, so I can't promise it's going to be good, but I hope it's going to be good. Yep. And we're going to be back next week for kind of a, a fun conversation. Uh, find of a, uh, an incredibly fun conversation about how unbelievably inconsistent the show's worldview is yeah. and why that makes it so hard for us to analyze the show. Yeah. So that's what we're going to be back for next week. We hope you join us here for that, fingers crossed. Uh, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, if there's any you know, insights you have to offer for the character that we can share with people. We would love to hear from you. Drop us a line at profilingcriminalminds at gmail.com. Uh, if you're listening to this on some sort of an app or podcaster, be sure to rate and review the show because that is how people find it. We're going to see you back here next week for more Criminal Minds Definitive Breakdown. But until then, I'm going to say au revoir. And have a good week. Profiling Criminal Minds is a member of the Kinks Podcasting Network.